This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your hosts, Chris Spear and Andrew Wilkinson. Each week, we'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. The following episode is one of our COVID Zoom sessions. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook and Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 34 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. On this episode, we have Rachel Armistead from The Sweet Farm. Many people know The Sweet Farm from their fermented products such as sauerkraut, kimchi, pickles, and ginger beer. They were the first business licensed to sell sauerkraut in the state of Maryland. They also had a successful food truck that served their fermented products along with grilled sausages. They recently made the decision to stop using the food truck and to end production of the krauts, focusing solely on the production of their ginger beer. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, they lost much of their existing ginger beer business and have decided to pivot again. Hear Rachel tell her story and learn more about the pasture-raised pork business they're focusing on. If you live in the Frederick, Maryland area, you can go to their website, thesweetfarm.com, to learn more and to order some pork. On this episode taking your product to market and the challenges of staying competitive, being able to pivot quickly when you're not in debt, doing what you love and the struggle between being an operator versus practitioner, and what happened to her business when her revenue essentially dropped to zero due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you enjoy the show, have ever received a job through one of our referrals, have been a guest, been given complimentary Chefs Without Restaurants swag, or simply want to help, please consider donating to our Venmo. It can be found at venmo.com forward slash C-H-E-F-W-O-R-E-S-T-O-S. Any help would be much appreciated. And feel free to let us know if you have any questions. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Welcome, everyone. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast, and this is Chris. And today I have on the show Rachel from Sweet Farm here in Frederick, Maryland. Morning, Rachel. Good morning. How's it going? Oh, it's pretty good considering the state of the world. (laughs) I guess that's kind of a loaded question at this point. (laughs) Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your business and what's going on right now? Uh, Well, we have a sort of a meandering story to our business. The Sweet Farm was actually born probably about 10 years ago. My husband and I started a business in Virginia and it was called The Cultured Crock. And we started this fermentation business after meeting each other. Both of us were fermenting as a hobby. And when we met, we were, you know, both making ferments for fun. And he actually, on, my, on our first date, brought a jar of his own sauerkraut to my house when he came over for dinner. My roommates were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Because I made sauerkraut too. And it was just kind of this funny little uh, coincidence. Anyway, we started fermenting together as we got, you know, closer in our relationship. We actually went on a sort of fermentation honeymoon in a sense. We went to um, a four-day fermentation retreat with Sandor Katz, who's sort of the, you know, modern guru of fermentation. Anyway, that kind of led us to making more and more stuff and people sort of were really enjoying it. We were giving it away to friends and family. And then all of a sudden people we knew started asking if they could pay us for it. And we thought, well, maybe other people would pay us. 
And so we started that in Virginia, where we were living in Southwest Virginia. And then right as we got all of our permits and all of our stuff was ready to go, we moved to Maryland somewhat unexpectedly. Um, my husband, Luke, his grandmother uh, was injured and couldn't care for their land anymore. They had 50 acres in Frederick County. And they, the family was going to sell the land. And we said, wait, 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 wait. We're interested in the land. Don't sell it. Don't sell it. We'll take it over. And then as soon as we were interested in it, then my husband's parents said, hey, well, that sounds great. We want to be a part of it too. We just didn't want to do it on our own in our retirement. But if you guys are in, we're in. So that prompted this move to Maryland. And then we start, we needed a name for our farm. And, you know, we came up with the sweet farm. And uh, because every idea we had on the farm was like, oh, that's such a sweet idea. That's such a sweet idea. This is going to be a sweet farm. And we were like, there you go, sweet farm we decided to start the new business uh, in Maryland. And that was a little bit of a challenge because Virginia and Maryland, the laws are totally different in how you start a business and how you start a food business. So we sort of had to relearn everything. But we finally started the business here in 2012 and went to our first farmer's market in Frederick, just selling sauerkraut. And that was a whole nother issue with the health department. If you want me to get into the licensing and all that, I'm happy to do that. But it was a, a bit of a slog, but we finally got through. We were making sauerkraut in 2012. Couple, maybe a year and a half later, we started making pickles as well, fermented pickles. We added kimchi, we added mustard, we added all kinds of things. And then meanwhile on the farm, uh, we were sort of trying to figure out what the farm was for. And Luke started raising hogs. And we really enjoyed that and found that it was a good use for our land. And then we decided, how can we promote both items, the pork and the sauerkraut? And we thought, food truck. <laughs> so we decided to start doing vending events, selling our pork and sauerkraut together, grilling sausages, serving pork. And then in amongst all of that, I'm not exactly sure when it all started. We started making a fermented ginger beer as well. So we sort of snowballed one little thing started and now and then we sort of ended up with three businesses we had the farm we had the food truck and then we had the fermentation company um and that kind of fast forwards us to just a few months ago um when we were actually moving away from our food truck moving away from the sauerkraut and pickles and kimchi and all that just going to focus on our, it has a, it is a high profit margin. It has a lot of growth potential. And we were looking for a part of our business that was going to sort of uh, project us into the future and, and make a, you know, a livable wage for us, good income for us and, and, you know, good family life. And we really thought the ginger beer was, was where it was going to be. And so we kind of started that down that road, phasing everything out and starting the momentum up with the ginger beer and then bam, coronavirus. <laughs> uh, Kind of changed everything. Yeah, that derailed uh, a lot of people. So the shift to ginger beer alone was it just that you would have lower operating costs or better profit margin in general? That it was it just made more sense to focus on one thing and kind of do that really well and have less costs? Was that really how that came about? Yeah, there was kind of twofold in that decision. On the one side, it was profit margin. Um, you know, produce costs have been going up. We've had such fluctuations in weather and uh, produce availability over the last couple of seasons that it was getting harder and harder to find large amounts of produce at good prices. And packaging costs and labor costs, all these things were kind of going up incrementally. 
On the other side of that, there are more and more good brands of ferments coming out that are bigger than us and can, can make it for, a le- for less. So we were kind of getting squeezed on both sides. Our costs were going up. And we couldn't really just raise our prices because we were seeing a lot of competition from other larger companies. So that was kind of the sauerkraut was sort of becoming kind of a non-viable enterprise because we just really were making very, very little profit on each jar. And then on the other side of the coin for the ginger beer, the food truck was wonderful. We loved doing it. And the profit margin was great enterprise was just so much of our time and energy. And it was lots of nights, lots of weekends. And it was just really, we were having a hard time maintaining good family life and sort of, you know, physical and emotional sanity. <laughs> um, because, and then we also decided that we needed to make a big change during the winter or early part of 2020, because we knew if we didn't let go of the food truck altogether, then starting in April, when our food truck season sort of starts, we would just be in it for another season. And we would just be, because it really, it was hard between April and November for us the last few years, it's been really hard to make any improvements or changes in our business because we've been so busy during that time. Yeah. I think these are great conversations. Hopefully our listeners uh, really listen to to a lot of that. You know, I meet so many people who want to start businesses, both getting products into retail and having a food truck. And I, you know, they're both very hard and I think maybe harder than they seem to people on the outside. You know, everyone's just like, oh, I make this sauerkraut. My friends say it's good. Like I'm going to make sauerkraut and get it in grocery stores. And it's really not that easy. It's really hard and the profit margins aren't great. I see so many people doing it and not to discourage anyone, but I really think a lot of people are jumping into these things without having any experience in business and not really knowing what they're getting into. You're someone who seems very successful with all that. You've been doing it for almost a decade, both the sauerkraut and then the food truck. And I think from an outsider, it's like, yeah, they've got a great business. And then one day it's, you know, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, And I think that's definitely something people should take notice of. Yeah, we, I get calls a lot and I've actually given talks if I'm talking to farmers, I'll be talking about starting a value added product with their product that they grow on their farm or just people who are starting a food business. And I think that not to, again, not to discourage anyone, like you said, but to take it very seriously and think very long and hard about what you make and what the competition is. When we started making sauerkraut, we were for the most part, the only sauerkraut on the shelf. It was a relatively new industry. There weren't very many national brands and there were hard, there were no local brands. We were the first brand. We were the first company to be licensed to make sauerkraut in the state of Maryland. And so we were very small and we're still very small. And so we have just not been able to grow to the point where we could compete with some of these larger industry, you know, industrial brands that are coming in because they see it as a viable segment of the market. Um, and that was sauerkraut. That isn't even a very popular item. If you make chocolate chip cookies, you better be damn sure they are the best chocolate chip cookies on the planet before you go into business. Because just because your family likes them or your friends like them doesn't necessarily mean that the wider audience is going to pay a premium for, for a chocolate chip cookie when there are you know 150 chocolate chip cookies on the market. Oh, I agree. And I think as a food entrepreneur, we kind of also live in this bubble where we know of 
the small food businesses and support them, but then the general public still doesn't know. So to me, it's like, oh, of course everyone knows Sweet Farm and uses their product, but like, it's probably really like a one or 2% of people that I would meet on the street. You know, it's like pizza. I love Andrew. I love Pizza Llama. And when people say, you know, oh, who's your co-host? I say, Andrew from Pizza Llama. And people look at me like, who? And I'm like, you live in Frederick and you don't even know, you know, and he's been doing it for that many years. So it's really easy to get caught up in that hyper local food bubble when you really need the general public to latch on the same with like these stupid uh best of lists when i see them all the time it's like the best restaurant and it's some random terrible place and it's like but that's the general public like these are our customers so it's easy as a chef to say of course this restaurant should have gotten that but people like roy rogers the best and you know there's not much you can do about that yeah, it, it is true. And it, it can be discouraging. It can you can see it as an opportunity for education and you know getting your product into more hands um, that wouldn't normally get it if you can do it right. But it also can be really discouraging when yeah, it's just like you hustle and hustle and hustle and work your tail off and still it feels like you're you're fighting for just such a tiny segment of the population that's even paying attention at all. And then there's the marketing component. Did you do all your own marketing? For the most part. I mean, we work with designers to come up with our labels for our sauerkraut. And we work with some freelance designers over the years to do like t-shirts and, you know, some of the swag and, and some of our designs on our truck and things like that. But I am also very lucky to have a very, very handy husband. And he built our truck, which is pretty distinctive. And a lot of people do know that in the Frederick region because we drive it around all, all, all over the place. And um, he has also done some design stuff too. So he was able to kind of sometimes do some of our design work. But yeah, I mean, our Facebook and social media and all that kind of stuff, you know, we've done it in newsletters and all that stuff. We've done it all in-house, either me or uh, employees that we've hired to do that. Um, and it's been great. I think, you know, we, we probably didn't spend as much on marketing, as much time and money and energy on marketing as we should have. But I feel like we did okay for the resources we had available to us. Yeah, well, that's kind of my point is like, it's a lot because it's the same for me. I have one business that generates revenue and then the chef's restaurants thing and I'm doing it all, you know, and where do you spend that time and energy? It's like, I have to go out and cook. I have to shop. I have to stay in contact with my customers. But then that marketing point of like, oh, I should probably do a Facebook post today or maybe I should do two Instagram posts and doing all of that when you, there's only so many hours in the day. And then, yeah, you could hire someone to do it, but then it's cutting into your um, costs and where do you focus time and money? And it just gets to be so much. Yeah, there's a lot. It, it's a lot. And I think that you're right. You say it earlier about that. A lot of people who have a good idea don't think about all the things that require doing to get that good product off the ground and to keep it flying. Um, I come back to a lot too. I don't know if you've ever read, um, the e-myth. Yes. Yeah, I highly recommend it to anybody looking to start a business because I really come back to it all the time, especially when I talk to anybody who's asking for advice starting a business uh, when they make a food product or something like that is, you know, at the beginning he talks about, I think it's, he uses the example of a hairdresser and he says, you know, if you love cutting hair, don't, don't own a salon, work for a great salon because once you own that salon, your job isn't to cut hair anymore. Your job is to run a salon now. So, you know, for us, one big pivot, not, not pivot, one really important milestone for our business is when I stopped making sauerkraut, when I got myself out of the kitchen and was able to work on the business more. 
you know, because I realized very quickly, nobody's going to pay me extra to make the sauerkraut, right? Nobody's going to pay a premium for that jar of sauerkraut just because I made it. What really is going to keep this business going is that if I pay people to make the sauerkraut and I'm working on growing the business. And that's so hard for me because that's why I started my business because on the flip side, also, as you move up in any industry, you stop doing what you love. You know, I'm a chef and I used to cook and then I was working for someone. And as I moved up and became an executive chef, I wasn't cooking anymore. I was basically an office manager and doing HR and hiring and firing. And I wanted to cook. If I wanted to cook, I would essentially have to take like a 50% pay cut and just go back to being a line cook. So then it's like, well, I'm going to start my own business so I can go cook every day. But then as the business grows, you know, you have that crossroads of like, oh, do I want to, once again, not cook and hire someone to go out and do the job? So for me, it's a constant struggle of finding a way to run a successful business, uh, grow it, and still be able to do the thing I love, which is be the practitioner. And, you know, that gets to be very challenging. Yeah, it is challenging. And there, you know, there's two, I think, two ways in someone like your position, like I said, no one's going to pay me to me a a premium to make the sauerkraut, but someone might pay you a premium because you are the chef and, and, you know, people are going to pay you to do it. So that's one way to do it is you make yourself the important part. And so you can charge a premium for you doing whatever it is you're doing. We have a, a good friend and actually my husband's cousin is a furniture maker. And that's what he does is, you know, he's gotten himself very well known and his pieces are just absolutely beautiful. And so people are paying him a premium to do that work. And so that's obviously one way to do it. But even when you think about, you know, the grand masters of painting, you go into a museum and you see, if, you know, I don't know, like a Michelangelo or Van Gogh or whoever, they had apprentices who were doing much of their, uh, the base work for their paintings, right? Doing the gesso and doing the stretching of the canvases. And it wasn't like every single moment of the work was done by them. And yet we call it a Michelangelo or we call it a Monet or whatever, whatever artist, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I used to live in Seattle and Dale Chihuly's out there and I'm sure you know of him, you know, he's this glass artist and same thing. He used to make all the glass and now it's like Chihuly Studios and he has God knows how many people in there, you know, pulling glass and doing that under his guidance or the guidance of his team. And now when you get a Chihuly glass, it wasn't made by him personally. Right. So the ginger beer was going to be your next move and then kind of what was the decision to assess whether you're going to go forward with that or not yeah so it's really kind of a crazy series of events because we had um we had an article come out in the common market which is frederick's uh local co-op grocery store we had an article come out in their bi-monthly newsletter in march and then we had another little article come out in april in frederick magazine and then we put out an announcement, a little video announcement to our um, customer base um, in very early in March. And then within a week, it was like, whoa, wait a second. What is happening here? They closed the schools. They started to close restaurants. And we just, all the momentum we had kind of fizzled. And the reason for that is that we made the shift to ginger beer. And we, were, we decided we wanted to move away from the grocery model and move toward the spirits model. So bars, restaurants, you know, distilleries having their own bars now, um, seeing our product there, maybe in liquor stores, pushing in that direction. But we really hadn't pivoted completely to that direction. So we had some bars and some restaurants that were 
excited to start using our stuff and wanted to become our clients. And, you know, we had some sort of leads and we had a lot of momentum in that direction, but we didn't have any solid customers yet. And of course, then all the bars and restaurants closed. And so, you know, bars and restaurants are not taking on new local products necessarily when they're closed or only doing takeout or curbside or whatever. So, and then Common Market, again, who's actually our best customer, they shut our kegerator down uh, because it's a high touch point. So we essentially went from, you know, really kind of chugging along with good base customer and then a lot of momentum to literally zero sales in like a matter of days. Wow, that's devastating. And, you know, I live up on the, in the 7th Street area and I've been looking forward to the new common market. And I'm sure that would have been a great opportunity for you with that new big store going in there. I'm sure you were looking at that and planning for that as well. Yeah, we were estimating um, probably to see, because we were probably estimating to see our sales at common market alone probably go up by 50 to 70% just from that one customer because of that new store coming in. So we were really looking forward to that and really excited. But then when our revenue just dropped to zero, we realized, okay, we have to look at this and see. Well, for us, it was like, okay, what do we predict is going to happen here? And right when they decided to close schools and right when we were starting to sort of research what this whole thing was about, we kind of had a realization that this is, this is not going to pass quickly. And my husband and I um, are kind of a post-apocalyptic geeks a little bit. We're like really into, um, you know, apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic literature and books and movies and things like that. And so we were like, uh, this is serious. And I'm not saying that this is it, like the big it, but at the same time, we kind of recognized that this is something that will alter the way our society works. And it's going to take us a while to sort of figure that out and what that looks like. And we realized that we didn't have the momentum, the revenue or the bandwidth to wait that out. Yeah. So for now, dead and buried. So what are you working on then? Well, we, one of the reasons that we were able to make this pivot and make this decision so quickly and so firmly is that we are not in debt. We don't have any business loans and we don't have any investors. So while our company hasn't grown as quickly as it could have, had we taken out a big loan at the beginning of our business, um, it has allowed us to make pivots and shifts and changes as we've seen fit over the years. And this was just the most glaring example of that, that we were beholden to no one and able to decide this doesn't make sense for us. We're not going to be able to wait this out. We need to decide, we need to cut it and let it go as quickly as possible. And so luckily it was a time when we don't have many employees anyway, this time of the year we have very few employees because we don't, we haven't, we hadn't hired for our event season yet. So we didn't really have to lay anybody off too much. Um, we had a few people that were extremely part-time and they were kind of fine to just, they were home with their kids now anyway, and it kind of worked out. Um, so that was a really easy thing to do. Um, we're kind of trying to slough some of our um, expenses by getting rid of some of our equipment, selling some of our equipment. We made some changes to our insurance policy and things like that to kind of slough some expenses. Um, but now we also really feel lucky because we have this farm. We have a 50-acre farm in Frederick County. And we've been raising some of some crops and, and, and raising pork for a few years now. And so we're really going to pivot 
there and put all of our energy into the farm, especially since we're here anyway. Yeah, time on the farm we're well here spent. here every day, all day anyway now. So we're really putting our effort. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we see all these people on social media and stuff doing all these hilarious things like recreating famous photos and like doing all these really funny things because they're in their house cooped up with nothing to do. But really, we don't have time for that. We are like totally busy. There's so many things to do on the farm. And it's like the perfect time to be on the farm all day because it's the spring and it's time to plant and it's time, you know, we're having, uh, we're farrowing, which is um, where we're making babies. We're making pig babies. Uh, So we just had two sows have babies in the last month. So there's lots to do. And we feel really lucky that we're able to pivot relatively quickly and, and, and put our attention here. Well, I'm hoping that one of the things that comes out of this is people are going to really see the importance of the local food economy, you know, because everyone's freaking out. Oh, you know, I haven't gone to the grocery store in two weeks and I went to Wegmans and they were out of everything. It's like, yep, we have a lot of farms here. Like they're very low contact. You can order from them online. You can go and pick up your pork. You can pick up your vegetables and more and more people in the past couple of weeks have been going to farms to get their eggs and going to places like that to get their milk and stuff. And I hope that they really remember all of these people when this is over and you can go back to grocery stores. Yeah, we, I would say you hit it on the head. I think that we really predict, my husband and I predict a resurgence and not just a resurgence in like, I feel like we've played lip service to local for a long time now, but I really think that we'll see a resurgence in interest in local food and supply, uh, short supply chains. I hope so. You know, I, I've seen that already just from friends I talk to, but you know, I guess time will tell and some of it's going to be dependent on, I guess, how long this thing stretches on for. But I want to go back to what you said about, you know, running a lean operation because I'm in the same boat. And this is something I've talked about on the podcast for so long. You know, my business, Perfect Little Bites, I've never taken a single dollar out in a loan from a bank. I don't have investors. I have no employees. I have no capital expenses I have to pay off. I have no operational costs right now. So while I haven't worked in almost a month and brought in no income, I've also spent zero dollars on my business. My only costs for the most part are actual event costs. So putting the gas in my car to get to your house and the groceries I need to buy. And I've been preaching to everyone saying, be super lean, you know, put a year's worth of your salary in the bank before you do this, you know, really insulate against this. And I think people thought the economy was great and it was booming and they weren't expecting the crash. And I think I've talked about it on at least 50% of my episodes, like run that business as lean as you can, because you don't know when it's going to hit. And you don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of people were caught holding the bag and they're in trouble now. And yeah, it sucks, but I'm doing okay. You know, we're, we're getting our bills paid. My wife's still working, thank God. And I'm very fortunate that I've been very lean with how I run my business. Yeah, we, that's another, you know, I was talking about Emith earlier. That's another, not a book, but there's several books, but a philosophy that I highly recommend anyone running any kind of food business would look into is lean philosophy. It's a manufacturing philosophy, but it is totally applicable to any industry. And we've been doing that for a long time. We're always constantly looking on ways that we can improve our systems and processes and cut our costs without hurting our quality of product. And also a lot of times increasing our quality of product. And it's really, really important. It was funny when we went, when, when this happened and we realized what was happening, 
we look through our expenses and like, okay, what can we cut? What can we cut? And there was very little, which was a bummer because it means that we still have the operating costs we have. But at the same time, it made me feel good that like, okay, we really have a lean business. There's very little that's not essential. I haven't really looked in that per se as, what did you call it? Lean, lean processing? Well, lean manufacturing is the way it started. It's, it's also called the Toyota way because it started in Japan with the Toyota Auto Company. It's the whole idea of like just-in-time fulfillment and lean manufacturing. It's really just like shaving away any part of the process, any part of any one process that you do in your business to where it's only the essential movements, only the essential costs, only the essential, only the essentials, basically. Uh, and it's also just a matter of the big, one of the big ideas in it is constant improvement. So you're constantly looking for ways to improve rather than just saying, okay, here's my recipe. Here's my process. Business started. Don't think about it again. Yeah. And as long as you're not shaving costs in the places that are most essential, like for me, uh, food quality, what I'm buying, where I'm getting it from is where I want to spend my money. And then if I have any people working for me, paying them a more than decent living wage to help out. You know, I would rather look at my China and decide to purchase China used at Goodwill than buying $25 plates from somewhere else. So that's where I chose to cut costs and then make sure I have the money to buy the right food products and pay the people. But you know, once again, a lot of this comes back to people not having business experience. I've worked for both Sodexo and IKEA, which are global, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations, and you really learn budgeting and doing things like that. And I think a lot of people just jump in without having had that really great business experience and don't know how to do that as well as they probably should. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, I am not, we call ourselves accidental entrepreneurs. We did not set out to run a business. We did not set out to be, you know, I don't have an MBA. I didn't do any training in this. It's all been on the job training. I think that, um, a lot of what I've learned is because I've been really intent on learning about running a business. And I think no matter what you do, whether it's you just make stuff you sell on Etsy or whether you run a farm or a restaurant or anything, you run a business first and foremost. And so you really have got to educate yourself on the business side of things, um, most importantly, in my opinion. Are you planning on doing farmer's markets to sell your products or is it all going to be pick up on your farm? Um, we're trying to figure that out. Right now we're doing pick up on our farm and you can still order ginger beer. We do still have ginger beer. We're just about out of sauerkraut altogether, but our ginger beer is still available and then our pork is available. And our website is thesweetfarm.com if you want to check it out. But we are, I guess we're, the farmer's market question, we're kind of waiting, waiting and seeing. Because I think it's great that farmers markets are considered essential right now, but this is the time of year over the winter and into the early spring, they're relatively lightly attended as it starts to get into fruit season and vegetable season. That's when you see people crowding into farmers markets and then you have a problem of lots and lots of people in the same place. And so I'm just not sure what they're going to do about farmers markets. Well, I think just yesterday, uh, DC mayor closed them for the season and said they weren't going to open. I saw that uh, in my Twitter feed yesterday that both um, 
seafood markets. You know, they had this incident at the wharf last weekend, I think, where it looked like there were hundreds of people just hanging out there uh, after they bought their seafood. So the mayor said no seafood markets and no farmers markets right now. So it looks like in the in the D.C. area, they're not even looking at opening them this spring. Oh, well, I hadn't heard that yet. And that's kind of, we were scheduled to do um, four or five markets this year. And we could have continued to do that. But we just decided that we didn't feel like it was, it wasn't certain enough for us. We feel like we may see them close at least for a period of time. And so it wasn't something that we felt was um, enough that we could wait for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you have to have a little bit of foresight. How many times do you want to change your business model? I mean, I know everyone wants to keep working, but you're seeing these restaurants shift from full service to curbside to delivery to doing all these things. And they're trying to keep the money coming, but it seems like every couple of days or weeks, they have to adapt and change their business model based on you know, whether we're a shelter in place or what's essential. And that seems kind of exhausting. And you know, when people were asking me about um, going out and doing private dinners, they said, well, legally, you can still go do that. And I just said, I just don't see a model where that's really going to work. It doesn't make sense for me. You know, I don't want to keep changing the way I do business and have to remarket that every couple of weeks to keep on top of the laws. You know, now, while I could do it in Maryland, you're not supposed to be leaving the state. And a lot of my business is in both DC and Virginia. So I don't want to, you know, last week have said, oh yeah, I can still come to your house and do dinner and now say, oh, well, I can only do it in the state of Maryland. To me, that didn't make sense. So I've just kind of opted to stay home and work on the business aspect for the next couple of weeks or months, depending on how this goes. Yeah, I I feel we have a lot of friends who run food businesses or, or beverage businesses and or farms even too that, that are, rely on farmer's markets. And I really feel for them, a lot of them are invested, whether it is loans or investors, or they've bought all their seeds and they've planted all their crops already and they don't have any choice. Um, And I really, really feel for those people because they are struggling and they don't have much of a choice except to struggle. And so we're, you know, we're trying what we can to, to help. We, we're not in town, but um, you know, we're, we're trying to find ways that we can help a little bit here and there. But it's a real challenge and I don't, I feel very lucky that we are not challenged in that same way and that we made this decision early and uh, firmly, but my heart goes out to people who are, are really struggling and don't have any other choice but to keep pushing forward. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I'm going to continue to support businesses as long as I can. We're still trying to go out and get some food and beverage while, you know, maintaining social distancing, which is becoming a little more challenging. But yeah, I, it, it kills me to see all these people who would rather be at home, but they have to go out and work and shift their businesses. I mean, I have tons of friends who've been laid off from their jobs and are now doing things like night shifts. My best friend, you know, got let go and now he had to pick up a job where he's working from uh, 10 to six in the morning or something like that. And then has to come home and get his kids homeschooled. You know, that's really Mm -hmm. tough. Yeah, we are really living in unprecedented times. And I know, you know, it's kind of at this point cliche to say that, but it is actually true. And I do think that is that we're going to survive are the businesses that do take some time to really think through what they think the world is going to look like after this and who do take that time to, to, to have that foresight and think about what is the ultimate goal of my business and what is the ultimate shift I need to make 
to survive in the new world, not just from day to day now, which I understand is easier said than done when you're just trying to make it work day to day. But that's what's going to survive is, is businesses that can take that time to really think through what their business is going to look like at the end of this. And I've been asking most of my guests, you know, what does marketing look like? And in, in your opinion, what's appropriate right now? You know, I think everyone's been on social media for a while now. And what does your messaging look like? And how much do you have to incorporate um, some kind of social aspect like, you know, I'll donate product to businesses or, you know, I don't know. I just think it's really hard to have a business and then keep posting on Instagram stuff throughout this whole downtime. It kind of comes off as tone deaf or something. I don't know. It's hard. I don't know. I would not say like, I don't feel like I'm any kind of social media expert and it is so noisy right now. Like the digital world is so noisy. We've essentially moved ourselves online. And I really think, um, Luke and I've been talking about this a bit lately about what we see happening in the tech world. And I think we're going to see an acceleration of virtual reality. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I didn't think VR was going to be that close, but I think you're right. There's a lot of things moving quickly and with so many people being home and wanting to connect in some sort of way, that does seem like a somewhat viable option. I think that we need to acknowledge as quickly as possible that this is going to last for a while. Now, whether this extreme lockdowns that we're on right now is going to last a while, we don't know. But what I do think is going to last is that we are going to see phases of this and we're going to see um, periods of social distancing off and on. And I think that's going to continue until we have a vaccine. And we have never, ever had a vaccine for a disease in less than two years of the disease rearing its head. So we're in this for a while. We're going to see a lot of growth is in virtual reality and ways to make digital connections with each other. Yeah, that's why I've really enjoyed doing the podcast. I've almost, well, I have increased the number of podcasts I'm doing because it's my way of connecting with people. You know, I used to get together with Andrew once a week at the brewery and we'd have one, two, sometimes three guests come in and that would be it. But now every day I feel like I want to connect with someone. So I'm home. It's like, oh, let's pop open the laptop and Zoom and do a quick podcast session here. So I'm at the point where I might be doing two releases a week just because I'm getting six to eight sessions recorded uh, in a week sometimes. And instead of sitting on them, I'd rather get them out because I just want to sit down and talk to people. You know, if you go back to November, nobody predicted any of this, (laughs) you know, November wasn't that far ago. It wasn't that long ago. And uh, the world we're living in right now looks nothing like the world that was just less than six months ago. Yeah. Yeah, it is really kind of amazing how quickly it's all happened and how I just feel like we're in this amazing time warp where, you know, six weeks ago feels like a year or two ago. Is there any food businesses that you would even recommend starting right now? Like in your mind, would it make sense to start anything? Is there anything that's kind of insulated against this or that could... I hate to say capitalize on this, but have you even thought about that? Not necessarily for yourself, but just kind of 
thinking, oh, you know, if I had a whatever business, that would be pretty good right now. Yeah, I have given some thought to that. I do think local farms are, I'm not sure that it's a, I'm not sure about starting a farm because starting a farm is difficult any way you look at it. But I do think that farmers that are already in business, I think that they could double down because I do think there's going to be an interest in more local food and demand for more local food. At least I certainly hope so. And any farm, we have lots of friends who are farmers in the area and then out of state. And many of them, if not all of them, are seeing an increased demand in their products. And so they're planting more and they're growing more and they're they're doing more. So I think that that's a really good um, model that will continue and become more important. Um, You know, Luke and I were talking about this just the other night that I think that right now, you know, getting, getting things delivered, the food and the liquor and the beer and all those things getting delivered is awesome. But I think that people may become fatigued when they've got to call, you know, McClintock or 10th Ward for their liquor. They've got to call Full Cellar Farm for their vegetables. They've got to call uh, Bread at Boxcar for their burgers. Like they've got to, you know, make all these separate calls. I think it would be a really amazing business to start to like centrally um, have some sort of almost like a food hub, almost like a local products hub where like one you call one place, you get your orders, and they're all delivered at once. Now, that would take a lot of pretty serious uh, logistical figuring, but I do think that that would be something that as we normalize this way of life for the next couple of years until there's a vaccine, I could see that being a really strong strong business. So have you looked at a thousand eco farms? Do you know anything about them? I know a little bit about them. I met the founder right when he very first started. Um, So I do know a little bit about it, but I haven't paid much attention to it recently. Well, that's what they're trying to do. Like I know Don at the Fingerboard Country Inn is like the Frederick County drop-off site. So his whole idea is basically being like, in my words, like the Cisco of small local farms. So, you know, you can buy, in theory, like your pork and so-and-so's eggs and, you know, some veggies from Full Cellar Farm and like go pick them up at Dawn's place. Like she had, I believe, like um, commercial refrigeration and freezer units put in so she can be a pickup site. So like if you go on their website, 1000ecofarms.com, you can look at all these different farms and where their products are being stocked. So you know, I don't know how much work he's been doing on that right now with things going on, but it seems like now more than ever, it would be a, a smart way to make that happen. That's cool. Yeah. I haven't looked at their website in a while, but I'll take a look at it. Cause that is, that's cool. And they're not far from us. So maybe we'll be getting a, going out there for a pickup. Yeah. So any other words for food entrepreneurs or anything about business you want to talk about before we kind of jump into the rapid fire? I just would say that my heart goes out to all those people who are struggling and also the people who are just working, like not just the business owners, but the people who are working, you know, behind the counters and as the cashiers or wherever they're working, because a lot of them are for the paycheck uh, and feel scared. And I, it's, I don't even know what to say. It just is such a hard and totally unexpected thing that we're dealing with right now. And it's okay to feel crazy or depressed or upset or confused. 
feel all the feels. We've been feeling all the feels around here. And some days we feel happy and some days we feel sad. And sometimes I don't want to get out of bed. And sometimes it's beautiful and the sun is shining and it feels great. And all of those reactions are okay to have. And for me, they seem to be coming fast and furious in yes, the span right. of a day. You almost feel bipolar, totally. you know, previously you'd have a day where you feel great or a day where you're a little down and now it rides through waves and like every hour you're checking in with yourself and reassessing things and going through all the emotions really quickly. I felt the same way with a newborn. Like when you have a newborn baby, it's like so new and crazy and you just like are adjusting to this, this whole way of life. And it's just like, sometimes you feel really happy and sometimes you feel sad and sometimes you're frustrated and sometimes you're confused and you're tired and all these things all at once. And that's kind of how this feels like all the time. It's just like, what's happening next? Who said what? Who did what? What's happening? What's the death toll? Oh my gosh, people are recovering, but then they're dying. And it's like, it is just so overwhelming and that's okay. I mean, I think there's this, a, a, a and there can be such like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like entrepreneurs, in my experience, entrepreneurs and especially food entrepreneurs can get so like, I just got to do it. I got to push through and I'm tough and I'm going to make it happen. And it doesn't matter what comes my way. I'm going to deal with it. And that's an awesome attitude. That's part of the reason you're a successful entrepreneur. But at the same time, that is exhausting, especially when you're inundated with something that is so supremely bigger than anything we've ever seen before. So giving yourself permission to just feel shitty for a day or a minute or whatever it is, and just giving your permission, yourself permission to say like, I just can't today, or I can't for five minutes, you know? Yeah, it's hard for me because I am a little self-diagnosed ADHD and I don't do well <laughs> with schedules, you know, so this is kind of like my field day and I need someone to rein it in a little bit, especially because like, you know, we're trying to work on the kids with schooling at home and like, I can't keep a schedule. So like, how am I supposed to keep them to a schedule? And that's really <laughs> tough, you know, and I think some days you have to have that, but some days you also have to be kind of loosey goosey about it. You know, today the kids are on quote unquote spring break. Like their teachers didn't assign anything. It's like, yeah, like normally we wouldn't sit on the couch and watch a two and a half hour movie, but you know what, let's do that, you know, and let's not even worry about getting dressed today. And I think that's okay. And some people are very regimented about like, no, we got to stay on the same schedule and make sure that they're dressed by eight o'clock like they would on a normal school day. And it's like, eh, I don't know, like, that's not the camp that I'm in, you know? Yeah, we've been also kind of very loose about scheduling. And I'm not very good at schedules either. And so with our kids too, it's just like, all right, yeah, most of the days we try by around eight to be dressed and be, we're doing school and we're doing the things, but it's just like, they are fatigued and confused by this too. And so like, if they're having a hard time, it's just like, you know what? Math is not that important today. <laughs> I a hundred percent agree. <laughs> so I want to jump into some of our quick fire questions. If you're ready, we've changed them up a little bit. I say we, I, Andrew hasn't done any of these Zoom podcasts, but you know, one of the questions I've been asking people is, you obviously knew you're going to be kind of quarantined for a couple of weeks. Were there any items that you rushed out to the store or made sure you had on hand? Like if you're not going shopping all that often, what did you stock your pantry with or what do you wish you had? We have a pretty, like, so we've got seven people living here all the time anyway, because my in-laws live on the farm too. And then Luke's grandmother lives on the farm as well. So we're feeding seven people a day, all day anyway. 
So we have a lot of stuff. We have tons of pork, obviously. We always get um, bulk chicken purchases every year from our friends at Open Book Farm. So we had a lot of chicken in the freezer. We get beef from our neighbors who raise grass-fed beef. Um, veggies is hard to keep up. We have things in the garden that aren't ready yet. We have been trying to keep enough veggies, which has been hard. And then like we eat a lot of dairy, so dairy's been hard to keep uh, in stock. We can't find yeast to save our lives. That's like one thing that we want. Like nobody has any yeast. <laughs> I have a very small amount. I've baked a lot this week and I'm down to, I think, two packs and like a fresh brick. Now, supposedly my neighbor just ordered a pound on Amazon and oh. she's willing to share some with me. I think she's been waiting two weeks for it, but that yeah. is something you can maybe do. I think I probably need to tone down the, the baking. I don't need to be making four loaves in a week. <laughs> yeah, we have definitely been on a comfort food diet around here. <laughs> we've been on a comfort food diet. We've been on a clean out the pantry diet, like all that stuff. You know, I had like some red lentil penne that we picked up at Trader Joe's probably like eight months ago. And for whatever reason we hadn't made, it's like, oh, I'm going to cook this up and I'll just toss it with some marinara and, um, you know, throw some whatever meat we have in the freezer in there. And everyone ate it. So I'm trying to do the FIFO at home right now. Like, let's get rid of some of that other weird <laughs> stuff we have before we break into the good newer stuff. That's right. What's in the back of the freezer, the back of the pantry? <laughs> For me, it's a lot of organ meat at this point. I'm trying to figure out how I can cook up like my beef hearts without the whole family knowing that it's beef hearts. <laughs> yes, we have a ton of pork organs and we have a ton of fat back. We're about to do a big rendering session and just make a bunch of lard. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we um, every year go in with some friends on whole animals. So we'll get like a whole lamb custom butchered for us. And they never want the organ meats. And then they go above and beyond. They have it butchered. And when they go to pick it up, they'll actually bring home more free organ meats from the butcher because he's really not doing anything with them. And a lot of their customers don't like them. So every couple months, I just load up my freezer with like 30 pounds of mixed organ meats between beef and lamb. Nice. It's really too bad that we don't um, eat more organ meats in this culture. They're really, really, really good for you, especially when they're from grass-fed or pastured animals. And they have a lot of the same function, a lot of the same nutrition as fish, which we, you know, everybody knows how good fish is for you. And organ meats can have a lot of the same things without the heavy metals uh, that a lot of fish has in it. But we just don't have a culture that's really big on them, which is too bad because our freezer's busting with pork organs. <laughs> That's why I was really glad that I was in the Frederick News Post talking about heart a couple of weeks ago. You yeah. know, they, it seemed, in my opinion, that they reached out to the right guy. She said, do you know anyone who cooks organ meat, specifically heart? I'm like, right here. I don't need to send you <laughs> to anyone else. I think I'm the guy for this challenge. <laughs> so are there any businesses open right now that you want to give a shout out to, whether it be a restaurant doing pickup curbside or a farm other than yours where people should maybe look at supporting? Because I'm trying to just, you know, keep sharing the word of people who are still open for business. Yeah, sure. So farms that I think, um, farms that we know personally, now I'm not saying that these are better farms than other farms in the county, but these are ones that we know and shop from personally. Uh, our friends at Open Book Farm, they raise organic vegetables and they raise the best chicken I've ever had. And they raise beef, pork, and eggs as well. So they're a great resource. Uh, Full Cellar Farm, uh, is great for organic vegetables and they will do home delivery and, uh, Pleasant Hill 
produce. They have a CSA, which is a good option. You just get a, a, a box of produce every week. And then as for businesses in town, you know, our, we are really good friends and business colleagues, I guess, with um, McClintock and 10th Ward Distilleries. Uh, they're both, I think, doing home delivery now. And then Idiom Brewery, they're doing home delivery and they'll deliver all through the county, which is awesome. And then Attaboy Brewery is doing curbside pickup. Those are our two favorites in town. And then um, the bonus about uh, Idiom is that Boxcar Burgers is parked outside and they're good friends of ours and, and a great, um, great burgers. And you can get those delivered too. We actually had a really awesome little morale booster here at the farm the other day because we got Idiom beer and Boxcar Burgers delivered, which was amazing. And then we had my mom... Luke's aunt and Luke's sister visiting and we did this big sort of outdoor socially distant little dinner because they're all three of them are isolated completely on their own. They're all single and alone um, in their home. So that was just really, really nice for everybody. And we just on a nice sunny day, we were all outside sitting really far away from each other, but we could still talk to each other. And it was just really nice treat. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how businesses pivot after this, you know, I've talked to some people and I think I'm going to have them on the podcast. Like, does delivery make sense for a lot of these businesses going forward? I think a lot of people, while it's labor intensive, maybe the new business model should be that boxcar delivers more often. You know, I don't know what Brett's thoughts are on that. Maybe he can come on the podcast. But, you know, I do think a lot of people are going to be analyzing kind of what works for hey, their business. I yeah. And I think that right now, everybody, again, like I said before, everybody's just struggling to survive and struggling to make it through the next day and the next week and the next month. But when they really evaluate these models, delivery and whatever else, it's like, does it really work for their business? And they'll have to decide that. And that's why I think there is some possibility for businesses to partner up. Like, you know, we got IDM and Boxcard delivered at the same time. So it's one delivery for two orders. And so if they, if there are more businesses that can couple and do that, they may find that all of a sudden de delivery is more viable financially. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the unknowns is department of health or liquor regulations. It seems like right now it's kind of the wild west. Like yeah. <laughs> all these organizations wanted businesses to survive and they passed through a lot of things and made them legal for the time being. How do you put that back in the box? Like now we're all used to having, you know, 10th Ward deliver liquor to our house, but is that something that's going to be allowed going forward or to go cocktails? Like we've kind of gone into that realm. Is there any way to turn back? I guess that's one of the big unknowns too. Yeah. I think they're going to have a lot of hard time. I think they're going to have a hard time putting that back in the box. I'm not sure they can. And I think also the same can be said for home, like people who are working from home. I think there's a lot of people who are going to say, now I can work from home. Like why, you know, why wouldn't I be able to work from home now? I've shown you that I can be productive. I've shown you I can do this from home. Like that's going to be hard to put back in the box too. And how about culinary resources? Uh, I'll say specifically for fermentation type stuff. What do you think would be very helpful, whether it be books, websites, people to talk to, uh, where do you think people should start? Um, well, we are actually, we've been having a lot of interest in what well, we've been, as we phased our sauerkraut out, we've been people are asking about, could we do um, a workshop? So we're actually going to do, hopefully in the next week or two, we're going to be putting together an online sauerkraut video, how to make sauerkraut at home. So be on the lookout for that at our website, uh, thesweetfarm.com. 
But uh, Sandor Katz has a great website. He has a lot of resources and information. His website is wildfermentation.com. And there's a really fun Facebook page uh, called Wild Fermentation uh, Facebook group that has tons of recipes and ideas and just like fermentation geeks from all over, all over the world doing weird stuff and fun stuff. So those are, I guess, the big places. Oh, and then there's... Um, Nourished Kitchen, I think, is another one. She's a Whole Foods, not Whole Foods the company, but like she's a Whole Food blogger who does a lot of like traditional and Whole Food recipes and she does a lot of fermentation too. So she's a good uh, website to check out too. That's great. And as always, I'll put these in the show notes. So as our last question, what do you want to be remembered for? And that could be personally, professionally, in our business, I would say that I want to be remembered for, or what I feel like is our best legacy is I feel like we really, really, really cared for our employees. Uh, I feel like we tried to pay them as well as we could. We really cared for them and still do care for them through hardships they were having or anything that was going on in their life. And that was really the most important thing to me about our business is that we were good and honorable employers. So I would say professionally, that's, that's the thing that I feel was most important about the duration of Sweet Farm. And then in terms of personal, I don't know, I said I was a good person and that I treated people with care and yeah, I guess treated people with care and respect. That sounds like a pretty good way to want to be remembered. I would hope the same for myself. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great. Uh, hopefully we can see each other in person before too long. I'll have to get a <laughs> farm order in. And yeah, hopefully you and your family are, are doing well. And I really look forward to seeing you all soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really nice. And to all our listeners, uh, you can find us, as always, at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. And you can also email me at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.